And now you have to listen to me. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12, as we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 34. One of my favorite books on leadership is, uh, it's really not just for leaders, so feel free to read it. It's just a great book. It's just about the life of a leader, so it's kind of a leadership book. But it's this little tiny book, 75 pages uh, long, called Agape Leadership. It's written about the life of R.C. Chapman, who was a pastor uh, during the 1800s. It was written by Alexander Strau and Robert Peterson. Uh, Chapman was born into a very rich family. He grew up, got this great uh, education, uh, went to law school, became an attorney at the Court of Common uh, Pleas and also at the Court of the King's Bench. At age 23, he inherited a small fortune and uh, he just seemed to have everything going for him. He was rich, well-educated, well-liked, had a great position, and you just think the guy was going to live the rest of his life making lots of money, being very influential and, uh, you know, dying fat in the grave. And that's uh, not what happened, though, because God had another plan for him. At age 20, he had come to Christ, and God began to work in his thinking he thought of going into the ministry and uh, and so finally, after some prayer and consideration, decided that's what he was going to do. And yet when he would preach, he wasn't very good. As a matter of fact, he was pretty pathetic. And uh, he concluded that, quote, there were many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. And my great aim will be to live Christ, end quote. And he did live Christ, and he became a great preacher. At age 29, he became pastor of Ebenezer Church in Barnstaple, uh, the county of Devon in England. Uh, When he entered the ministry, Chapman gave away uh, the bulk of his fortune, saved a little bit so he could buy a house. He had two criteria for his house, that he had to make sure that it was in the poorest part of the town, And that it had extra rooms so he could house guests. He never married. Had many famous people like uh, Hudson Taylor stay with him. Spurgeon said he was the godliest man he ever knew. And uh, it was an interesting life that he lived. He had people over his house. He would tell them things like, "Uh, I go to bed promptly at nine. And so if you could remember to keep your shoes outside your door. And they always thought, why? Why have your shoes? Why leave my shoes outside my door? And that's because he would get up at four and he would then polish everybody's shoes. So that when they woke up in the morning, he would ask them what time they would like to arise. And he would then quote Bible verses to them at their door. And then when they would get up, he would lead them to one of uh, several little cozy spots in his household where they could have a quiet time with Jesus, often providing a blanket, a warm fire. And this was the man's life. On Saturdays, he would always take Saturdays off and work in his little wood shop and make furniture for missionaries. He was an incredibly generous man. One time he decided he was going to visit George Mueller, which you probably know was the famous for his establishing orphanages at that time. Orphans, orphans were often just neglected and lived in the street. 
And so he decided that he was going to visit him and give him some money. And when he showed up, George Mueller said, we have been praying. We have no money. We didn't know how we were going to feed the orphans. And you are an answer to our prayer. He one time was given a nice new coat by a man who saw his clothing and thought, you know, you, you're a great preacher, man. You, you've got a neat church. You needed, I'm going to buy you a coat. The next time he saw him, though, he wasn't wearing his coat. He said, where's your coat? I found somebody who didn't even have a coat, so I gave him the new one you gave me. One time chap, Chapman was traveling with a friend to South Devon. They agreed to meet up after their trip there and return home together. And uh, when they finally came back together for the train to trip home, uh, the man, knowing Chapman, said, do you still have your train fare? He said, no, I gave it away to this poor old lady I met. And his friend then replied, what are you going to do? He says, my father knows all about it. And uh, his friend then said, well, so... What's going to happen? And he just turned to his friend and said, my father knows all about it. It was right then somebody came up in the train station and said, Pastor Chapman, I have some money I want to give you. And gave him the money. And he turned to his friend and said, my father knows all about it. On another occasion, Chapman had been speaking at a conference. He had plenty of money when he went, but he gave it away. He got more money for speaking at the conference, and then he gave that away. His traveling companion said, well, what are we going to do? He says, my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Let's go to the train station. So off they went, and they got on the train. And the man said, when they come for our money, what are we going to tell them? My father, Chapman said, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It was then a man walked into the boxcar and said, are you R.C. Chapman? He said, yes. He says, we've never met, but I've been carrying a five pound note in my pocket for you for a long time. Pulled it out and gave it to him. He turned to his friend. My father <laughs> owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that is how the man lived. And that is how God blessed him. Chapman believed the word of God. He worked hard. He lived by faith, was generous to the poor. And God provided for all of his needs. And when you read stories like that, maybe your first thought might be, well, he's kind of presumptuous. He wasn't safe. No, he was trusting. We aren't safe when we trust in ourselves. We aren't safe when we're not generous. We aren't safe when we're not living by faith. You see, a lot of times we we don't live by faith. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our savings account. We trust, trust in our things. We trust in our gold card to bail us out. And so we don't really need God because we never put ourselves into a situation where we actually have to trust him. And so then we never see God pull through for us. And when we never see him pull through for us, then it encourages us more to doubt his promises that they ever come true because we never see him work. Because we never trust him. 
enough to see him fulfill his promises. And then we become greater skeptics than ever before. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is addressing his disciples. They are within earshot of this huge multitude and with these angry religious leaders. Jesus knows that his disciples are scared because they've sided with him in public and Jesus has offended everybody. He's rebuked the religious leaders, called them hypocrites headed for hell. And he's basically said the same thing to the, to the crowd. So they're feeling a little scared. And so Jesus then goes into a rather lengthy section addressing the proper fears and unproper fears, godly and ungodly fears and motivations for living. Right in the middle of his discourse, this man pops up and he wants to kind of use Jesus and the crowd to manipulate his brother into giving him some of the family inheritance. Jesus then launches into a parable on greed. He tells of the rich fool who stored up great amounts of wealth and possessions and thought he could presume upon God, thought he could live and eat, drink, and be merry for many, many years. But that night, God required his soul from him. And in the end, he was a fool because he wasn't rich toward God. The man had lots of wealth. But he wasn't rich toward God. And therefore, he went to hell, though rich in this world. So Jesus, having told that parable, then just kind of gives some very encouraging words and says, you know, think about the ravens, those unclean birds. God feeds them. Think about the lilies of the field. Look how they're clothed. God takes care of them and he's going to take care of you. So don't worry. Don't anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't fret. God is going to take care of you. And then he ends this encouraging section with these words. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Think about that. Think about that phrase. Seek his kingdom And all these things, food and clothing, will be added to you. Do you believe that or not? It's easy to read a verse like that, a promise like that, where God puts his character, his reputation on the line and says, I will do this. And yet, sometimes we never give him a chance. We're so careful to seek first our comfort and safety and pleasures. Thinking that all those things would then be added to us. But that's not how it works. And so what's interesting is Jesus, after saying a statement like that, after teaching on worrying and anxiety and fretting, now is going to give His disciples, having said, don't be this way, kind of the negative exhortation, he's now going to give them some tangible ways to learn how to not worry, be anxious, or fret. And so what's interesting is he does it in a very amazing way. You would think, you know, that he's going to say, well, pray about it, and God's peace will come over you, and then you'll you'll be calm in the midst of the trials, of financial trials of life, or something like that. You know, like, you know, God's just going to zap you. 
But look at what he says, and this is our text for this morning. Follow along and uh, as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From this text, Jesus gives you three positive steps you can take in order that you might live for and invest in eternity and in order that you might learn to trust in God and to believe that he will take care of you so that you don't worry about food and clothing and things that he has already promised to provide. The first thing he says is sell to give. Look at verse 33. Jesus having told us that we don't need to worry, fret, or be anxious, then says sell your possessions. Now the word sell in the Greek means sell. (laughs) And possessions mean possessions. Amazing, you know. You look up all these lexicons and they keep saying sell. Sell, it means sell. So, okay. Um, Nothing fancy there. No mystery. Sell your possessions. It's a command. As a matter of fact, it's one of the strongest commands in the Greek. It is the strongest command in the Greek. An heiress. So that's the command. Now, why would Jesus say, sell your stuff? You know, get on eBay, put an ad in the paper, have a garage sale, sell your stuff. Why is that? Well, for one basic reason. Because when you find somebody in need... The best way you can meet that need is by giving them cash. You know, cash is king. Cash meets the widest number of needs. You know, if somebody's in need and you know they're in need, you don't really know what the priorities of their need are. And if you drive up their yard and, you know, unload a truckload of potatoes, that might be fine. You know, they might like all, you know, 400 pounds of potatoes, but, you know, probably not very helpful. They'd probably, they'd probably prefer to have the cash so they could like, you know, use it on just, you know, whatever was most important with their life at the time, their greatest needs. But he says you need to sell, you need to give your possessions to charity. Give them to charity. The command to sell is necessary to obey the command to give. Liquidate your assets, turn it into cash so you can give it away. Remember how in the early church, in Acts chapters 2 through 4, there are several mentions, actually in chapter 5 too, several mentions of, uh, of uh, at Pentecost, how the, the, the new church people were selling their stuff and giving it. You remember that. Um, you remember Ananias and Sapphira um, who lied about it and died for it. But anyways, they were giving their possessions. Do you know why? It was because at the pilgrims feasts jews would come from all around the mediterranean basin to worship in jerusalem pentecost was one of those times so all the jews came to jerusalem thinking they were going to be there for the week of the feast and then return home the problem is is at that time the church was born the apostles began speaking Many people came to Christ and so many lives were changed that people just thought I want to stay. I don't want to go home. I want to learn about Jesus. 
I want to learn from the apostles. I want to see all these miracles God's doing. I want to be part of this. So they stayed. Well, they ran out of funds and then they couldn't eat. They couldn't support themselves. They were away from their farms and their, their businesses and their source of income, wherever they came from. And now they were in need. So then the Christians who had means were then selling their things to provide for those who were in need. And so that's what's going on in those first chapters. That is just one such example. You know, a lot of times it's pretty interesting being in the church. People give all sorts of things to the church, you know, broken pinball machines, worn out couches, cars that don't run. Here's my junk, you know, can I have a write off? No, we're going to charge you to give that, you know, (laughs) to have it towed away. Um, jewelry, stocks, lands, all sorts of things because they don't want to hassle with it. Um, you know, we'll just get this and let the church deal with the problem of selling whatever. Uh, really it's best to just do that yourself and make it part of the sacrifice of your offering to just give it as cash. Everyone knows that, um, you need to give to charity and that's what he says, give to charity. But what does that mean? Well, the NIV translates it the poor, um, the English Standard Version, the needy, uh, New King James, alms. It's all talking about giving to people who are in legitimate need. But I just want you to know, the church is really confused about who is in need today. And this is because for many, many reasons, but a lot of times we think that if people are poor, therefore they're needy. Well, A lot of times they are, but their need is oftentimes just the need for the gospel. There are a lot of people who are poor, but they're poor because of themselves. And it would be unwise to give to them. Paul describes certain people in Titus 1.12, Cretans as evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Now you think about that. Are we to be, I mean, are they the poor? Should we be giving to the evil beasts and lazy gluttons? No. That's not what the Bible teaches or what Solomon describes as the sluggard. We should, we, we should be giving and supporting sluggards? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. They are not needy. The reason a person is poor determines whether they are in the category that Jesus is talking about whether they actually are legitimately needy or not. For instance, the sluggard is in sin. The lazy person is in sin. What they need is the gospel shared with them and told to get a job. Not to just sit there. So don't feel guilty, you know, when the guys stand and will work for food. You know, I remember a TV program where they, they, uh, I think it was 60 Minutes or something, went to the, a whole bunch of those people and tried to get them to work, and no, none of them would work. They couldn't get a guy to work. Because that, that sign there is nothing more than a con. It's like, you know, poor person on the sidewalk. You know, I'm going to throw some cash out the window. What you see people do? They're encouraging them to not work. To be sluggards. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I just want to show you a little bit about what the scriptures say. Because a lot of people ask me about this. They go, Pastor Hughes, you know, I see these people. Should I, should I be given to them? You know, I mean, I've got money in my pocket. Should I just, should I give it to them or not? I mean, you know, are, I, I mean, is that wise stewardship? Well, let's see what the word of God says. Proverbs chapter 6. 
Verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to the rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Notice. Here, the lazy, the sluggard is instructed to observe the ant, not beg, not go on welfare, but observe the ant. And what are they to observe the ant for? So they can see how busy they are. They're always walking. They're always moving. They're always working. And that's what they need to do. A lot of times, you know, I feel like carrying a, a sign in my car. And when somebody approaches trying to beg for whatever, I just hold up, observe the ant, you know, <laughs> get back in the medium and look for an ant trail um, and observe the ant. Why? Because ants work hard at providing for themselves and they work hard at providing for the colony so they don't become a burden to anybody. That's the whole point. Well, the sluggard is sleeping and slumbering and all of a sudden his poverty comes upon him like an armed man, you know, ambushes him. Turn over to Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, verse 19. Notice what Solomon says here. The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is light. Here, the slugger's life is described as a hedge of thorns. That is painful. I mean, if you've ever had to trim a hedge of thorns, it, it's pokey. Now, if somebody is a sluggard and you give them money, you keep them in the hedge of thorns. You keep them there. You don't. You aren't loving them. You keep them in the hedge of thorns. The best thing to do is say, you know what? I'll buy you lunch. Come over to my house, sweep the sidewalk, pull the weeds, you know, do some work, work, and then I'll provide. Proverbs 19.24, look at what it says there, 19.24. The sluggard buries his hand, hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. That's bad. <laughs> you know, here you go. Okay, I've got some work for you to do. Here's a bowl of food. Let's set it in front of you. Now. Let me get your hand. Stick it in there. All right. Work and feed yourself. Oh, I can't bring it up to my mouth. It's way too hard. They won't even raise up, bend their arm to bring it to their mouth. They, they refuse to work. Even the whole picture there is of a guy who just has work set right before him. He can provide for himself. It's just right there. And he won't do it. He won't do it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. Look what it says there. The slugger does not plow after autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. He doesn't look into the future. He doesn't consider what might happen. He just neglects to even think about providing for himself. Parents, you need to teach your children to work. I'm serious. There are a lot of kids who grow up experts at video games who can't even work a broom. You know, a lot of times parents just start, they, you know, we just think, well, we've got the money and why does he need to do that? Make him mow the lawn. Well, we've got a yard guy. Fire the yard guy. <laughs> Fire the yard guy. It's like, well, yeah, but you know, they're busy in school. Oh, come on. So that means they don't have anything else to do. Hello. Hey, listen, you want to go to camp? Summer camp's coming. Work. Wash the car. 
you know, I'll give you $20 to wash the car. So what I pay at the car wash, you know, change the oil, dig a ditch, do some weeds, do some painting, work, work, work. Why? Because they have to, because God commands it. It's godly. That's what you need to do. You know, your kids, if they don't work, they won't appreciate the value of money. They'll go to the store and go, oh, man, can I have the $125 jeans? And you say, well, we can get them for 12 at Costco. (laughs) You go, yeah, but the stitching isn't cool. Well, put some stitching on them then, you know? But I'm telling you, you give them a job and say, well, let's work until you get $125. Now, go buy those jeans. I don't think I will. (laughs) Why not? It took me a long time to get that $125. I'm going to go to Costco. (laughs) But if you just... If you just give it to them and give it to them and give it to them, then they don't learn how to work. They don't understand labor equals wealth. They don't learn that principle. I I want you to know, though, they're naturally lazy. I mean, you come out of the room a sluggard, eat and sleep. (laughs) And they have to be trained. They have to be trained. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 5. 25, 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to do work all day long. He is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. I like this because it shows a contrast that's very important to learn. The righteous work hard and because they work hard, they have things, they have money, they have things, and then they're able to bless other with those things. The lazy people, because They're poor because they won't work, can't be a blessing to other people. They can't contribute. They only take. They can't give. They can't be generous because they don't have. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 13. This is a great one. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. (sighs) Come on. Hey, I'll tell you what, you can make some money. Come on over to my house. We got a few little chores we can do around the house, a little yard work, a little painting, you know, sweep the sidewalk. Oh man, I could never go outside. Why not? There's terrorists in the world. People get killed by drive-by shootings. There's murders out there. People have been struck by lightning. It's a sunny day. Clouds could come. You know, when people don't want to work, they make all kinds of excuses. Well, they can't do it. My back's a little sore and, you know, my head itches and I have an earache and, you know, whatever it is, they just come up with just excuse after excuse after excuse. And you know what? If you give to those kind of people, you encourage them in that ungodly way. You say, okay, just leave them alone. Pretty soon they get hungry. They come over. Hey, you know, you got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Sure. Mow the yard. So I'm not that hungry. Then they come back in a couple hours. Okay. Um, that's good. That's good. That is a good thing. It's a good thing. Isaac Watts, after surveying all the different uh, texts and the Proverbs on the sluggard, wrote this. Tis the voice of a sluggard, I heard him complain. You have waked me too, slu- too soon. I must slumber again. As the door in its hinges, so he in his bed turns his side and his shoulders and his heavy head. A little more sleep, a little more slumber. Thus he wastes half his days and his hours without number. And when he gets up, he sits folding his hands or walks about sauntering or trifling he stands. 
I passed by his garden and saw the wild briar, the thorn and the thistle grow broader and higher. The clothes that hang in him are turning to rags and his money still wastes till he starves or he begs. I made him a visit, still hoping to find that he took better care for improving his mind. He told me his dreams, talked of eating and drinking, but scarce reads his Bible and never loves thinking. Said I then to my heart, here's a lesson for me. That man's but a picture of what I might be. But thanks to my friends for their care in my breeding who taught me between times to love working and reading. That is so good. Friends help you grow to work and provide for yourself, to get a job, to work hard, to be faithful, to follow through. Paul tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, make it your ambition. Here's one of your life's ambitions. To lead a quiet life, attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. That's the short for get a job. But you know what? A lot of them were not listening to this advice. And so in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 10 through 12, Paul has to say it again. Where he says, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Oh, they're, they're busy, they're moving, but just going around talking. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. This man, get a job. Don't come begging unless you're willing to work. So don't feel guilty when you don't give to somebody who's a drunkard, who won't work, who's lazy, who's a sluggard. That person is not to be fed. The scriptures command. There's an ancient document. It's called the Didache. For a long time, they didn't even, we didn't have a copy of it. We knew it existed because very early church fathers would quote this document called the Didache. So they figured it was some document that must have been around about 150 AD, but they didn't know what it said, just little fragments of it because different early church writers would would reference it. Well, in 1873, a Greek Orthodox bishop came across an ancient manuscript, and in that manuscript, which was written about 1053... It had a complete version of the Didache. And so it has been kind of famous. They put it in chapter and verses. You know, some some people think that uh, it is uh, direct teaching from the apostles. Other people just think it's just what the church, you know, leaders in the church kind of assembled. This is how you apply Christian doctrine in the pages of Scripture. But in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, this is what it says. If the comer is a traveler, speaking of someone who might come by, uh, is a traveler, assist him so far as you are able. But he shall not stay with you more than two or three days, if it be necessary. But if he wishes to settle with you, being a craftsman, let him work and eat his bread. But if he has no craft, according to your wisdom, 
provide how he shall live as a Christian among you, but not in idleness. If he will not do this, he is trafficking upon Christ. Beware of such men. That is exactly what the scriptures teach. Somebody comes along. Oh, yeah, I can do this. Well, then do it. Well, I just don't have a trade. I will give you something to do so you can live like a Christian. What is a Christian live like? They work. They work hard to provide for themselves, not only to provide for themselves, but to have extras. They may be a blessing to others. Now, if you think about this, though, there is this little paradox that's happening, isn't it? We just learned that God's going to take care of you. The ravens, the lilies, and seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things will be added. And then all these texts saying, work, get a job, provide for yourself. Which one is it? Both. Both. I mean, if I were to say, is God sovereign? You'd say, well, yeah, God is sovereign. Does God tell you to work? Yeah. Does God tell you to trust in him? Yeah. Well, which one is it? Oh, God's sovereignty never negates the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God does not overrule the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God does not nullify it or set aside. You can't just let go and let God. It's work hard, be diligent, trust God. And he's sovereign. It's not either or, it's a both and proposition. God will take care of you. Fact. God wants you to work hard. Fact. Both end. Not either or. A lot of people don't understand when they study the sovereignty of God is the sovereignty of God always works in conjunction with the means he gives us in the scriptures. In other words, the commands he gives us. So if he says, yeah, God will help you grow in godliness, you know, he who began a work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's not so you can just sit around and go, well, make me godly, Lord. Yes, he's going to make you godly, but you also have to do what he commands you, which is study and practice and pursue holiness and the fear of God. Read the scriptures, meditate, obey, serve, give, and do all those things he tells you to do. Not one, not the other, all of them. Work hard and trust God. Don't be a sluggard and say, oh, but I'm trusting God. No, you're not. You're sinning against God. You're not trusting him. Otherwise, you'd obey his word. So who are the needy when Jesus says, you know, you need to give to charity or the needy or alms to the poor? What is he talking about? He's talking about those who, because of circumstances in their lives, find themselves in straits. They may be very hardworking, but still living in poverty. Those because of sickness or injury can't work. Those who want to work and can't find employment, they may be working some, but they can't Get enough to provide for their family. They're the needy. You know, I teach at the master's seminary. And one of the things pretty, that's pretty common among pretty much every student, there's a few exceptions, but all those guys have at least four-year degrees. Some of them have been to college six years, eight years, 10 years, 14 years. They're lawyers and doctors and professional football players and chemists and all kinds of things. And there they are in seminary. Some of them have the means because of they've, they've worked hard to pay for their seminary. A lot of them don't. And you know what? They're squeaking by. They're squeaking by. And you know what? They're not sluggards. They are some of the hardest working people I know. 
They're working at their job. They're serving in the church and they're taking an incredible classroom load all at the same time. That is a good needy person. Some college student who's going along and, you know, going to school full time and working part time and can't afford their book. That is a good person. Remember that in Jesus' time, there was no Medicare or Medicaid or government. And so if you were poor, you were just at the mercy of society to take care of you. And so that's why there's so many instructions to take care of the poor. We, on the other hand, in America, live in a whole different cultural context. We, we live in a welfare state. We pay all these taxes and to support those who need and support a lot of sluggards, too. Our government reaches out to people and just... Anybody who wants to work, anybody who wants to get an education, you know, I, I, it's always interesting to me that if you work hard and get a job, then you have to pay for your college. But if you're totally irresponsible and immoral and, you know, just totally failure in life, you can go to the government and get a free education. I don't know about that. So there's things broken. But the, the point is, is in Jesus's time, none of that was in place. None of that was in place. And so... Somebody who's poor relied on the generous people in society. So then the question is, well, what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? I mean, after all, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to charity. You know, he pretty much taught the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in both chapter 5 and 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, remember we told the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler said, what must I do? Well, keep the commands. Oh, I've all done those. Then sell everything he got and give to the poor. Oh, and so he went away. Why? You know, if I were to ask you, um, could you tell me the gospel, how somebody could get to heaven? Do you ever tell people just sell everything and give it to the poor? You know, the one spiritual law, sell all, give it to the poor, get to heaven. I mean, is that what you say? Why did Jesus tell the guy that? Because Jesus knew that the man loved his money, was trusting in his money. And you know what? When you come to Christ for salvation, you have to trust in who? Christ to save you and Christ alone. And so he gives the man the command to see whether or not he's willing to trust Christ completely or not. There's a lot of people who come to church and, oh, I'm a Christian and, oh, I know I'm saved and, oh, I know that, you know, um, I'm going to heaven. But you know what? They, They don't trust God. They don't believe God. They don't trust in Christ. They're trusting in themselves. I've been a good person. Even though they know the facts of the gospel, you know, they understand who Jesus is, death, burial, resurrection. They've got that stuff down. They just don't believe it. They don't believe it. And so they're really not saved or Christians at all. They're unbelievers, religious unbelievers. The church is full of them. Every church has them. Now, Does this mean then, since Jesus says to us in our text, sell your possessions and give to poverty, since he said in the Sermon on the Mount, so he told that the rich and ruler, you know, if we ever get to Luke 14, if we ever get there, he's going to tell us, sell all your possessions and give it away, or you cannot be my disciple. Ouch. Are you sure? You know what? There's been people throughout the ages who have taken these verses from Matthew and Luke, assembled them together, and said, we need to take a vow of poverty. You have to do that to become a Christian. You know what? There's something you learn about false teachers. 
They like to take part truths and teach them. And when you take a half truth and you teach it as a whole truth, it becomes a whole lie. So you have to be very careful to look at all that the scriptures teach about this. Jesus is making a certain point in our text. He's not saying everybody needs to take a vow of poverty. And it's like, well, how do we know that? Because we see Jesus interacting with people with lots of money. And he never condemns them for having money. Like, look at Zacchaeus. You know, the guy crawls out of the tree. He has the big banquet. He's going to pay everybody back that he's robbed way more than he robbed from them. He's still got a lot of money. But Jesus didn't say, oh, you're a bad person. You know, when when the centurion in Acts, you know, had everybody come over, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he has lots of servants. He goes, hey, man, you shouldn't be having all this. You should sell it all. To give it to... No, they don't say that. The Bible is not against private ownership. It is against selfishness, greed, and hoarding. It is against not being rich towards God. And that's what Jesus is after. He wants us to be rich toward God, not selfish. You need to be willing to give up all to follow Jesus. You know what's interesting? Is, you know, we have all kinds of things. Houses, furniture, TVs, stuff. You can buy all that stuff for yourself and use it for yourself. And it'll be a blessing for yourself. And it will amount for nothing in eternity. You can, you can take that same stuff and give it to somebody in need. And it will be storing up treasure in heaven same stuff same stuff different motive and different use you know there are some people who have houses and they're constantly having people over and using their house to minister other people have houses they never have people over one they're investing in eternity the other they're not And that's what Jesus gets to the next point. Invest in eternity. Look at the middle of verse 33, Luke 12, 33. He says, make for yourselves money belts, which do not wear out. Now you think, okay, money belts. What's, what's, what's that money belt? You know, you might have your idea when those, you know, money belts, a little zipper, you can put the cash in it and hide it when you travel. Um, It really probably is better purse or in the modern day vernacular wallet, purse or wallet, uh, that does not wear out. You think, well, what's that about? Well, I mean, what are you talking about here? Well, it's this. In that culture, people didn't have pockets. They usually had cloaks and things like that. They would have a sash or a belt. And so they often had a little purse, a little satchel with a little string on it, and they would tie it onto their belt. That was kind of their money belt. You know, that's it. Little pouch. That's what he's talking about. Make one of those that doesn't wear out. Now you're thinking, well, how do you do that? What kind of material is that? You know, that, that's hard. I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, twice in Deuteronomy 8, 4 and 29, 5, it says that they went watering around the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes never wore out. You remember that? That would be so cool, wouldn't it? I mean, it would, in one way, it would be cool. You imagine wearing the same T-shirt and pair of jeans for 40 years. <laughs> I mean, you'd get used to it. Oh, yeah, there he is. He's got that stain on it. Right after we got out of the promised land, he's still wearing it. That's right. 40 years later. Sorry about that stain. Yeah, you have to be careful, you know. I mean, everybody would have very modeled clothing at the end of the 40 years. They wouldn't be worn out. 
Now, we are pretty uh, indulgent in our clothing. You know, the American consumerism and materialism. I mean, some women would freak out if they thought somebody noticed they wore something twice. It's like, oh, man, I can't go out there. They might know I wore this dress twice. Oh, tragedy, you know. But no, it's not a tragedy. I mean, just imagine wearing that dress for 40 years. Yeah. I want you to know, I, I just wonder if in heaven, you know, we're going to get up there and Jesus is going to clothe us in white raiment and that's all we're going to use for all eternity. Scary thought, huh? Not very fashionable, but sufficient. Yeah. But what is this money belt? Well, he goes on to say, look at the middle of verse 33, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Money belts, which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. So he's kind of explaining what he means. What is an unfailing treasure in heaven? Well, you know, there's only a couple things that we have that make it to heaven, right? It's not going to be your car, okay? Or your house or whatever's in your safety deposit box. What makes it to heaven? Two things, basically. One, your godly character. And two, what you do for others out of love for God. Sharing the gospel, ministering to other people. Those two things are the things that are going to show up in heaven. The deeds which you have done on behalf of others and your godly character, the things of the kingdom of heaven. If you're generous to the, to the poor, the gospel ministry, to those in legitimate needs, God's going to use that. You're going to be so stocking your eternal purse, a purse that will have treasures which will never wear out, which can be taken a couple of ways that the, the money won't be lost and it won't decay in your purse. Or I think more likely that it's just going to be unending. You'll have unending treasures if you use what God gives you now for eternity. And notice, it's going to be unfailing, which which is great. It's just going to be this, you know, a blank check for eternity. And notice it says where no thief comes near. That is so great because you know how it is. If you get something nice, you kind of want to protect it, right? You know, your great grandma gives you the Ming Dynasty vase worth four million. You're just going to put that in your living room. You're going to think, well, no, and my two dollar vase I was fine with, but. Maybe I should sell it. Maybe I should put it in a safe in my closet or, you know, lock it up somewhere. Why? Because, you know, somebody break the window and they could steal the vase. I mean, you start worrying about it. You know, you get a new new stereo for your old car. And what do you want to do? You want to get an alarm system to protect your stereo. You know, why don't you just get a new car and not turn on the alarm system? Just leave the windows open. It goes bye-bye. People steal it. You know, sometimes even when you have the alarm, they steal it. You come out and you're thinking, my, I got Alzheimer's. Where's my rig? You go up and down every aisle and you realize it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. That's exactly right. But no, in heaven, there's only ex-thieves, which is good. No thieves, just ex-thieves. And they walk right by your good stuff. You don't have to worry about them stealing anything. Not only that, you don't have to worry about moth destroying it, you know, rust and decay. Think about, I was thinking about Methuselah who lived, you know, 969 years. Think about Methuselah and how long he lived. And he probably had little trinkets from his childhood, you know, maybe he saved his binky when he was, you know, from a baby, who knows, you know, but he had all these things, I'm sure, items from his upbringing and he 
probably tried to hang on to those, but what happens to them? They just start decaying and falling apart. You know, I love old Bibles. I love old theology books. They are so great to me. I always open them up. and I like the smell of them and I like to just carefully read them. I have this one uh, Bible from 1790 that's just falling apart. And it's not because I use it a lot. It's just turning into Bible compost on the shelf. It's just falling apart. It's just decaying. It's the, the effects of sin and the curse. You know, if you're scientific, that's the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. Which is a scientific law that says if you take something, put it into an open state, stop putting organized energy into it, it will then decay and revert back to its natural state of equilibrium. Just back to its basic elements. You know how you, how you get your kid's room all tweaked out. It's all perfect. You go to the kitchen, you know, for a second. You come back, it's like, oh! <laughs> so you have to keep putting organized energy into that room if you want it to keep looking nice. You know, you, you know, some nice spring like we're having now, you just totally tweak out your yard. It just looks perfect. Everything's trimmed. There's no bugs. I mean, you've poisoned and fertilized everything into health. Anyways, what happens? Well, just don't touch your yard for a year and see what happens. Entropy. It just starts turning back into, you know, the savannah. Um, that's what happens. It just decays. It goes back to, to the natural state again. You take your house. Just take your house, wherever you're living, and just don't touch it for 300 years. You know, even if it's a good house. And the roof lasts 50 years and it starts leaking and then mold and then rot and then bugs and termites. And pretty soon all the timbers fall down and pretty soon it's this big rubble and the dust keeps coming and the leaves and they blow in and fill in all the cracks. And pretty soon you have what archaeologists call a tell. It's a dirt mound that you dig into to find out what the house was that somebody lived in a long time ago from best you can tell what remains. That's what happens. That's sin and the curse. But Jesus says, don't worry about that. We're not going to be in heaven a thousand years, even 10,000 years, but it's going to be forever and nothing's going to rot and nothing's going to decay and you're not going to lose any of the unfailing treasure. So get as much as you can because, man, it's going to last forever and no one's going to steal it. So that would make us think, well, that sounds like a good deal. If it's unfailing, if no one's going to steal it and it's never going to decay, then I want to accumulate a lot in heaven. And how do you do that? Well, he already said in verse 31, seek God's kingdom. That's it. Obey God's word here. Give, sell, invest in eternity. Let's say you give to the children's building. Let's say you're a single guy. You never want to get married. You never want to have kids. You don't even like kids. You know, they're just, um, they're, they're irritants. You know, I don't know why they're weird. They crawl around. They make noises. You know, they cry. You know, every time there's a baby, it kind of makes you wince. You go, well, I'm going to give to the children's building because I'm tired of the dirt. <laughs> and eventually it gets done. And, and there's some people that you don't even know who find out that Calvary Bible Church has a new children's building. And since they're kind of consumers... And now they don't have godly motives. They just go, well, let's go try out that church because they have a new building, which, you know, is a really good reason to go to church. Um, And they show up and they put their kids in the children's building and then they come here and they can only endure one one sermon and I drive them away. 
They never come back again. I mean, we can't handle that guy. They take their kids, but you know what? They heard the gospel. Their kids heard the gospel. Maybe one of their kids comes to know the Lord, or maybe they have seeds planted in their heart where they later on they come to the Lord. And you may never know them. You may never see them, but you may be part of what God used to bless them and bring them to the Lord. And you may not ever know that until you get to heaven. You've invested in eternity. You know, sometimes, you know, we we do things like I'm going to give to missions. You know, I know we should give to missions and I know we're supposed to give to missions. And so I'm going to give to missions. And so you give missions and you give missions and you never really think about what's going on. Maybe you don't pray for the missionaries. Maybe you never pick up a prayer sheet in the back and you never pray for the missionaries. You don't know what they're doing. You just give to missions and praise God for that missions committee. And, you know, they're going to hopefully spend it wisely. And then one day you go over there like right now that you could, you, you, you look in the bulletin or you look at that prayer list and you open the back and you see that there's been huge revival under one of our missionaries, which has just happened recently, the Earl's huge revival and another place near them. And you just think, you know what? That is so cool. Like this whole tribe of people, the bulk of them come to Christ. And you know why they're there? It's because you, you gave to missions. You gave to missions. And they're there because of that. And you know, you may not ever know them. You may never even meet one of those jungle people in Papua New Guinea. You know, you just say, hey, I don't know them. You know, if you saw them on the street, you'd never know. You're going to see them in heaven. Then you will know. You will know that God used you because you are willing to invest in things for eternity. So Jesus says we need to give and sell. Jesus says we need to invest in eternity. And finally, he says we need to treasure heaven. Notice what he says in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the word heart refers to everything that's you that's not physical. Your thoughts, your emotions, your volitions, your intentions, everything that's not You physically is your heart. Where, what does he say? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Or you could say, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. It works both directions. The question is, where is your heart? How much time last week did you think about heaven, witnessing to people, praying, ministering to others, giving things of eternity, how you're going to bless somebody else with, you know, yeah, sometimes it's finances, sometimes it's skills, sometimes it's knowledge. Like, what are you using? What God has given you, the totality of what God is using, given you to bless other people with, or is it all self-focused? Is it everything about me trying to find out what I want, protecting myself, protecting my reputation, protecting my turf, protecting my stuff? Me, 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 because it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what God you know, um, it gives me so I can take and hold it myself. Well, that person's dying. That person's dying. You know, I love doing a lot of things. I don't know. I'm just weird that way. Um, I love doing things. I like doing projects because I don't incur a stricter judgment when I do projects. If I mess up on some little remodel thing, it's fine. I can rip it out and do it again. If I mess up on somebody's life, that's scary to me. So, you know, I like doing projects, but you know what? I need to be careful not to be thinking about lumber all the time. You know, plywood, and nails and 
concrete and cement, you know. I mean, I can do that stuff. I just need to make sure that it doesn't consume me. I need to be thinking about the Lord. Now, I can figure out how I might use some of my skills to bless other people. That's one thing. But I need to make sure that I am living for the glory of God, that the bulk of my life is for God. I need to live for God. I need to live for eternity. I need to use most of my time, at least for other people, not for myself. You need to do the same. If your thoughts are always gravitating towards the world, if they're always gravitating towards me and things and stuff destined to perish, that tells you where you're treasure is you're worldly you're a worldling now you may be sitting there well you know but i'm a christian well maybe you're not maybe you're not a christian say well you can't judge me i'm not judging you i'm saying maybe you're not if you're consumed with the world and you don't think about the things of heaven and investing in eternity even if you went there what would be there like there's your stuff where that's the whole point there's nothing If you love Christ and God's grace has evaded your life, he's going to change you. You're going to want to invest in eternity. You're going to want to invest in others. You're going to want to serve other people. You're going to want to be a blessing. You're going to want to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands and be used by God for his glory, for the blessing of other people. And yeah, sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's skills. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's just encouragement or whatever God gives you, you use it for his glory. That's what Jesus is talking about. Invest in eternity. Why? So that you have this unfailing treasure. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And if you're sitting out there and you're realizing, I don't think about heaven. I don't think about ministering. I don't think about serving. Yeah, I come to church like an automaton. That's probably, you just need to know Jesus. You need to come to Christ today. Think, well... I don't know about that. Well, God knows. God knows. He says today is the day of salvation. You think, well, you know, if I come to Christ today, then God's going to take control. He's already in control. You're just not acknowledging it. You just need to believe in Jesus for salvation. He came to earth. He died on the cross. He was buried, rose again the third day. The gospel message Believe in that for salvation. Turn from your sins. Turn from living from yourself. Turn from your ungodliness, your worldliness, and start investing in heaven. Start putting away fast, man, because life may be real short for you. I mean, you think about the thief and the cross. He didn't have very much time. The only couple things that he did good were, you know, he's done nothing wrong. And we deserve what we got. And remember me. And that was it. But you know what? When you think about it, with the time he had, he did pretty good, didn't he? Defended Jesus's innocence, asked for salvation, and rebuked those who were accusing Christ, something many of us would never do. And yet he was doing that. We may discover he has quite a bit of treasure in heaven that we didn't foresee because though his time was short, his deeds were good. And some of us have lived a lot longer and done a lot less with the time that we've had. You may be sitting out there thinking, but Jack, you you just don't know how a sinner I am, man. I am a huge sinner. Well, welcome to the club. You think, oh, man, I just, 
And you just don't know me. No, but God does. And believe me, your sin is not greater than God's grace. You think your sin is like bigger than the death of Christ? Ha! Not that you're sitting out there going, well, I know I know Christ. I just need to grow in this better. It's like, well, well, that's where we're all at. We all need to grow in it better. Here we all are. We all need to get better at investing more in eternity. We need to become like Robert Chapman. Read the book. It's good. Agape leadership. It's real little. It'll just convict you to death and motivate you to do what's right. And just keep asking God to help you be generous to those in need to serve, to invest in eternity so that when you die and you get to heaven, you'll be so thankful. You set aside this earthly thing to invest in this eternal thing that you decided not to indulge yourself and decided to bless somebody else that you decided not to hoard here but to give and be generous there then when you get to heaven you'll have unfailing treasure that will never be stolen and never decay and will never wear out this is what jesus wants and this is what jesus says is the cure To worry and anxiety is to get your mind off yourself and get it on trusting God's promises and blessing other people. Amazing, but true. Sell your stuff, invest in eternity, accumulate treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Father, that you are so great and so kind and so wonderful to us. We know that everything we have is because of your grace We know that without you, we can do nothing. We know that you are sovereign, that you have promised to take care of us. And yet you have also told us to work hard, to be diligent, to be generous, ready to share. Father, help us to take all that the Bible teaches, to sort it all out in our mind. And as we work hard, trust you. As we work hard, be generous to be rich towards you. No matter how much we have, amount is not the matter. It's that you want us to be rich towards you, to seek your kingdom. Help us all to do that. And if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, may they cry out in their hearts to you, trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, receiving him as their savior and Lord, that you might cause them to be born again so they can begin to store up treasure in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. May you give us the grace to obey it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.